Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that joining us now from China is K.U. Jin, London School of Economics and Political Science professor, joining us to discuss global trade. Professor, great to have you with us on the program. It is um, some soothing words from President Xi. Can it actually materialize into real policy? Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I think that these words are necessary at this junction to cool things down. I mean, at this point, I think China and the U.S. has really trade frictions, not yet ignited a trade war. Uh, what uh, President Xi is also trying to acknowledge is that uh, given that China has benefited so much from globalization in the last few decades, it is actually time to give back to the global system. So I think that is really good news and a positive signal. Looking at our reporting um, over the last 24 hours from the team at Bloomberg News, it seems if there's a, uh, a point of tension, Professor, it's over the Made in China 2025 goals and the subsidising of those industries that China would like to excel at. Is that going to be a red line for the Chinese in these negotiations when they do officially start? Well, I think that these are kind of trigger points that have um, attracted a lot of attention in China and um, has kind of, um, uh, to some extent, uh, irritated the Chinese government officials. So these will definitely be uh, points of, uh, of tension. Um, I think what is uh, clear is that uh, despite the fact that President Xi has announced to the world these kind of soothing words, um, China is ready, ready to stand, uh, you know, to confront, if necessary, uh, rising trade tension, even a trade I think that they are totally prepared for a contingent strategy. Um, Professor, is there an understanding on the Chinese side of what the minimum condition of success is for the United States, what the United States would like, what would actually equal success? Perspective in China is that if um, the U.S., in particular, you know, President Trump's um, administration is ready to uh, back off on some of these very strong uh, words that have been put forth, then uh, China welcomes it, and that China would um, uh, prefer to have uh, talks and negotiations. Um, the outcome of which will depend, but I think that uh, the preference is for uh, Amer- you know, the U.S. to uh, to uh, to ease the tension, and then China would. Follow suit. Professor, good morning. Tom Keen uh, in, uh, in New York. When I when I look at the Chinese culture here and the tapestry that they bring to these debates, it is a timeline that is longer than any American timeline known. Is the basic theme of the Chinese to wait all this out? Um, in fact, it's very interesting that I think that uh, the Chinese perspective is that they are ready and prepared to, um, uh, to to deal with the you know rising trade tensions, even trade war, and they believe that it's a war of endurance. And yes, yeah. you're absolutely right, Tom. There's part of this that is cultural, but also the fact that the government has a horizon now with the term limit cancellations of indefinite um, horizons that they think that they will be able to wear this out better than the Americans. I mean, part of this is their perspective of our president. They look, do they look at the president as a one-off cultural event? Do they look at the president as a change, as a, a, a moment in American history where this will be consistently the American voice? Or, or is, it, is it something more substantial than that? 
Well, I think this is actually precisely the problem of this uh, every four or eight years of change of president, because the China actually thinks that they want to build a constructive and enduring good relationship with the U.S., but that's not going to work if, you know, every four or eight years there comes a, a president that is willing to completely destroy what they have constructed. So there is no uh, consistency or constancy of that relationship, and that's why it is very difficult for China-U.S. relations despite the fact that it is the most central foreign relations going forward. Sometimes, Professor, we take quite a simplistic view of things and, and frame this tension through just one data point, the trade deficit between the United States and China. What is the prospect of actually eradicating that trade deficit anytime soon, Professor? Um, so I think that, first of all, there is um, confusion on both sides about the nature of trade deficits. Uh, this confusion is a bit fatal because so long as the Chinese people produce more than it's able to consume, which I can see in the foreseeable future, it is always going to run a trade surplus. And similarly, for the U.S., if the Americans don't raise their saving rate, it's always going to raise a trade deficit. So it's not just a bilateral uh, trade agreement kind of issue between the China and the U.S. And we have also seen that uh, Chinese, you know, RMB or the Chinese currency has appreciated uh, substantially in the last 10 years, and the trade deficit has reduced also substantially. Um, and uh, the Chinese have sent, you know, multiple high-level officials uh, to, uh, you know, to, to kind of ease the trade tension talks, and this has not been enough. So now the Chinese people have been kind of fed up, and actually the Chinese businesses are. Um, Putting, putting pressure on the government to engage. For our listeners just tuning in, the mood music really improving um, overnight with a speech from the president of China. Futures up by 28 points on the S&P 500, positive about 276 on the Dow as we approach the market open about two hours and 23 minutes away. Professor, I keep saying the mood music has improved because the story, the sentiment around this speech gave sort of a conciliatory tone from the president of China. But when I look for real new policy or a suggestion that we would get new policy, I see a president reiterating things he said before. Was there anything new in this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is rhetoric uh, when the Chinese government official puts together these very formal, you know, uh, kind of um, speeches. And then there's action. Uh, I think that the spirit for a greater openness is certainly true. I think the, the kind of commitment to open China even more by importing more and um, giving back to, to the global trading system and in, especially in terms of financial services, is certainly there. But the question is, over what time horizon can this be reached? Is it really going to be executed um, You know, in the time horizon that is relevant? I think that is a very big question, Mark. Professor Jin, thank you so much. K.U. Jin uh, with the London School of Economics. Daniel Tannenbaum has, without question, the oddest job at PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, and that he's in the financial crimes unit with a huge history of things like sanctions, but yet, yet bringing it over to Homeland Security and, and such. I, I just got to go to an open question, Daniel Tannenbaum, and that is, what was your response when you saw a private attorney have an FBI raid in his home, his office, and I believe where he was staying at the Lowe's Regency Hotel two blocks away from our office. How did you respond when you saw those headlines yesterday? 
It's a, a fairly significant move by the Southern District of New York, by the FBI, to move further on an attorney for obviously a fairly high-profile individual. Philip Bump has a wonderful explainer in a post today where there was literally a team within the team of the Federal Bureau of Investigation to protect the client attorney privilege. Have you ever seen this in your career? Not in this high profile of an instance. I mean, the barrier to entry to obtain a warrant in a situation like this is significant. And I think people need to bear that in mind, given the fact that yeah. you know, a, a federal judge would have needed to approve the warrant to allow this search to happen. So this wasn't just kind of a decision made by the special counsel or even the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. There was a lot more that went into it. Including uh, Mr. Rosenstein. According, let's move on to your expertise. What is step two or step three or step eight of sanctions? I mean, I guess we all get brie cheese is a sanction item. Where do we go next on sanctions if we sanction? Well, if we're looking at Russia... And I think the move that the Trump administration made on Friday was by far the most significant since the Russia sanctions came Describe out in that, 2014. The, the Trump administration finally made good on the congressionally requested mandate to designate oligarchs and businesses close to President Putin. January 31st, around 11.57 p.m., there was the first oligarch list that came out, which, which was really nothing but the fortune list of the top 100 wealthiest people in Russia. What came out on Friday was significant. These are businessmen yeah. who actually are part of the global economy, who have dealings with the United States that have global businesses. This was a significant designation. What's fascinating about this, and it always strikes me as incredible when you have such a huge divorce between narratives and reality. The reality is this administration has now actually gone above and beyond what the previous administration did on Russia. This is really quite strong stuff from this administration against Russia. And it's not even just this. If you take the action for the amount of diplomats expelled, it was greater than any European country, including the UK, in terms of how many diplomats from the Russian government were forced out. So they've actually taken some fairly significant steps against yeah. Russia. You don't hear much narrative outside of the actions and the press releases coming out of Treasury, however. So let's talk about what this ultimately means. They've sanctioned 24 individuals, 14 companies. How does this actually play out and what are the kind of hotspots you're looking at? So the, the simple rationale of what this means is all of these individuals and entities and their assets in the United States are considered blocked. So they cannot access them, move them, do anything with them. It also means that U.S. businesses um, and U.S. persons cannot do business with these individuals and entities. Where this gets more complicated and where I'm advising clients very specifically at the moment is this is not an exhaustive list. So if you look at these oligarchs and you look at the list of entities designated, this is not an, an exhaustive list of their holdings. Anything that these individuals own, 50% or more, is also considered a blocked entity, meaning there's wow. prohibitions and dealings with them. So it's a bit of a go-fish exercise because you have to do the due diligence, understand beneficial owners of your clients to know who actually owns these businesses in Russia and is it one of these designated oligarchs. So for a lot of companies outside the United States of America now, I would assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the bias will be just to stop doing business with them full stop. 
I mean, you can. It's Russia. It's not that simple to just wind down But business. the reason I ask, Dan, is because for many multinationals outside the United States, they'll be wondering whether these sanctions apply to them and whether if they continue doing business with them, ultimately, what does it mean for doing business with the United States? So that is one of the questions. And the U.S. has had for some time what are called secondary sanctions. And that basically is forcing foreign businesses with otherwise no U.S. presence to choose between doing business with the target of the U.S. government or the United States. And I think that is a point we may get to. It's also pretty clear that this is just the first round of these type of designations. There's likely going to be more to come. Within this, do the Russians fear sanctions or do they just sort of, yeah, 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 whatever? The sentiment in Russia, as I understand it from my colleagues, is this is having an impact. Obviously, you look at what's happened to the ruble, you look at what's happened to some of the listed companies, some of Mm -hmm. which have lost 30 to 40 percent in value. Over the last few days and the $16 billion in personal wealth lost by some of the oligarchs, yeah. this is having some bite to it. So this will have an impact. What it means in terms of the Russian response, both either positively in trying to wind back some of the behavior that drove the package or offensively against the United States, that's still unclear. You just take a company like Rusal, Tom, um, owned by Oleg Deripaska. They're responsible for 7% of, of global aluminium production. I mean, it's huge. So you've now got this big immediate shortage for aluminium mm-hmm. supply for so many people. And if it, actually, if you look at the commodity market, just briefly, aluminium flipping into backwardation because the front end has just shifted aggressively higher. So there's some really interesting market bite points that are taking place here, Dan. I think moving forward, this isn't just about Russian sanctions off the back of what happened in the election here in the United States in 2016. No. There's also a conversation around Syria. But it's, it's also Crimea as well. This is like a hodgepodge of issues that so, drove the so designation. Talk to us just briefly about how the Syria issue could actually escalate things even further. If there's continued posturing by the Russian government in terms of what they're calling fake news and the attack that the Assad regime had placed upon its people over the last few weeks, I think that does further exacerbate it. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, this story just broke, and it's been out, but Selkin Hakaglia and uh, Farad Kozak out of Istanbul really write it up, and it goes right to the complexities, uh, Dan Tannenbaum, that you guys have to work with. From Damascus, if you go 260 miles straight north, almost to Turkey, you run into the old Hatay province, going back to like World War One and Lawrence of Arabia, and all that. And there is a town called Afrin, Syria, which the Turks have taken over, and they're not going to give it back even though Russia wants it. When you see geopolitics like that, how does that fold into the financial threats in world of Russia? It all feeds into trying to understand where and which you have interested parties that may be prohibited from dealing with certain territories. So where there's heightened Russian interest, these are provinces, these are regions that businesses may want to avoid to ensure that they don't get ensnared in any further sanctions issues themselves, that they may not find themselves as the target of a potential investigation. So really, I mean, you need to understand where you're doing business and where sanctioned parties or at least neighboring territories to sanctioned countries yeah. are in operation to try and manage that risk. And John, the headline here from Mr. Erdogan, when the time comes, we will return offering to its people but we will decide on its timing. And um, right on cue, speaking of market tension, Turkish lira out to new weakness. Dollar lira, a that. new wow. record high. A new record high on dollar lira. Not a substantial move for the dollar against the Turkish lira in the grand scheme of things of just six-tenths of 1%, but it's certainly a continuing bleed for that emerging market currency in Turkey, Tom. 
This is the interview of the day on Syria. Stephen Cook is at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has done long and hard thinking about Syria, about French Syria, and the greater and near Middle East. Stephen Cook, thrilled that you're with us uh, today. Let me begin with an open question. What will you listen for from President Trump and his generals? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And I think uh, it's I think the president has been clear in signaling that there is an American military strike uh, in the offing. Um, He has said over again that uh, those who are responsible for this terrible chemical strike are going to pay a price. So now the question is, what does the Pentagon planning look like? Uh, We did fire 59 cruise missiles at Syria uh, not long after the president took office. Uh, So it seems that they're going to have to do something much larger because those 59 cruise missiles didn't do the job that it was supposed to do, which was to deter Bashar al-Assad from using chemical weapons again. Your book, False Dawn, is out. What is the false dawn right now for the Middle East? What is the false dawn for the artificial borders of the mandate of 1922 that became became Syria? Well, the the false dawn is this terrible, horrible civil war that has become a vortex of violence that has destabilized uh, both the Levant as well as parts of Europe. Uh, And uh, the, the outflow of refugees from uh, Syria has had a tremendous impact on the politics in Europe. So it has really cast this shadow or this false dawn when at the at the outset in March of 2011, when Syrians rose up against Mm -hmm. Bashar al-Assad and the the idea was that he would fall and democracy would follow. We have had uh, actually tremendous amount of bloodshed and significant political change, um, not just in the greater Middle East, but stretching as far as Europe. Help us with the response of the allies of Mr. Assad. Mike Allen and Jonathan Swan over at Axios, I do think, do a nice job, folks, of partitioning. If we do A, they do B. If we do C, they do D, et cetera, et cetera. Does a pro like you, Stephen Cook, worry about the responses of these allies to our surgical force? Yeah, that is, in part, a a, a important part of thinking about what our strategy should be in Syria. It's not only how to respond to the actual event, but then subsequently how Bashar al-Assad and his allies are in turn going to respond. And I think we are in a process where we are testing each other, and we're at a rather dangerous moment because the Russians have laid the groundwork for uh, indicate, saying that this is a, some type of false flag operation, an excuse for the United States uh, and its allies to take action against Syria. And uh, we are inching ever closer to a real confrontation well, in Syria. Let me let me give credit to, to David Lawler over at Axos who wrote this smart uh, article with the three uh, thrusts. Stephen Cook, to quote, with one idea, hitting targets like joint Russian-Iranian bases or command and control centers. Is that even feasible now? That's a real escalation from what we saw with the previous Tomahawk attack, isn't it? It absolutely is an escalation. And there is a school of thought in Washington that um, we do need to take this type of action. Uh, The Russians uh, are more capable 
than they have been in the past, but not as capable, clearly don't match the United States, so that we can really send a message to them that uh, they need to rein in right. Charles Assad, and it would give us significant leverage in any negotiation process. And I think that that's, <clears throat> a, I think that's a position that makes sense, but we need to keep in mind the tremendous risks associated right. with it. First day on the job. I can't imagine, Stephen Cook, your first day on the job for Richard Haas at Council on Foreign Relations. Imagine Mr. Bolton, his national security advisor. Does he change the calculus of these choices, or is he someone that's going to be a bystander to Pentagon choice? I, I think that, that Ambassador Bolton long has a history of being hawkish on both the Russians and the Iranians. So I uh, suppose that he's deeply involved in these discussions mm-hmm. and, and evaluating what types of military plans. I would imagine that he is leaning more heavily towards sending a stronger message to the Russians, recognizing that our capabilities are now right. uh, remain greater than those of the Russians. Stephen Cook, the Council on Foreign Relations, in the time we've got left with you, I want to go back to your core uh, abilities, and this goes to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia with Mr. Macron, and we look over at the old French Syria. As I mentioned earlier, folks, Damascus, 260 miles straight north to Turkey, is a town in Syria. The Turks have taken over, Elfrin. They said, no, we're not going to give it back. Help Help us with the minority calculus of Western Syria buttressed up against the Levant and the Mediterranean. What does that calculus look like right now for these leaders and particularly Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia? This is the Syria problem has been uh, forefront for the Saudis, primarily because Syria has had a long-standing strategic relationship with Iran, and that has put Syria really in play, and the way in which other powers in the region have sought to use Sunnis within Syria, pit them against the minority but in power, Alawite uh, minority, uh, the way in which uh, the Kurds have been used by outside powers uh, who are trying to advance their own interests. That is why we see this fragmentation. There is this central conflict that runs through the Middle East right now, and that's between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, and it's being played out in places like Syria, in Yemen, uh, less so in Iraq, also in Lebanon. So um, I'm afraid even if the United States takes some sort of muscular action in, uh, mm-hmm. in the region against the Syrians, this type of proxy conflict is going to continue over a period of time, because Saudi's are not being killed, and Iranians are not being killed in large numbers. They're using others in their own conflict against each other. Explain then, within French Syria, this oddity of Mr. Assad and his Syria, Alawite Syria, and next door, Lebanon. I mean, the adjacencies here are extraordinarily complex, aren't they? They, they are indeed, uh, and it has been uh, a great mystery to many people why the violence in Syria hasn't spilled over in a big way into Lebanon. Why is that? Part of, that has, part of it has to do with the fact that through much of this conflict, the Lebanese have not had a government. Uh, they do actually have a government now, but it is uh, dominated by Hezbollah, which is keeping a lid on, on much of it. But you You mentioned French Syria. What we're seeing is a legacy of French colonial policy 
in this area that had sought to build up minorities at the expense of the Sunni community that thought that it was their right to be in control in uh, Syria and Lebanon. Um, as a result, you have an empowered Alawite community in, in Syria. You, the Druze were built up specifically. Um, the Maronite uh, community within Lebanon had a special relationship with France. And this has created these kind of ethnic and religious differences that have plagued this part of the Middle East for a very, very long time. Stephen Cook, this has been fabulous, a clinic of your great abilities. Mr. Cook is at the Council on Foreign Relations. I really can't say enough about his work and how we're trying to bring you folks within our mix of economics, finance, and investment, this important international relations at these important uh, times. To provide clarity for you now on the Facebook of your grandparents, your parents, you and your children is Scott Galloway of New York University. Many of you know his book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google was immediately my book of the year last year. I can't wait for the paperback uh, with the update. Scott Galloway. Page 111 in your brilliant chapter on Facebook, you talk about the difference of posts and interactions. How will these politicians talk to Mark Zuckerberg about his thing that makes us interact? Uh, good to be with you, Tom, and thanks for the kind words. It's going to be difficult just logistically because I believe it's what's called an open session in each senator only has four minutes so they're going to have time to sort of ask a question and they're going to have to get angry pretty fast which i think a lot of them want to do but it's going to be difficult for them to really get any sort of what i'd call engagement or conversation going unless uh, one senator more than one yield to someone else so it's going to be a series of quick hits is what we're likely in store for Within this is the history that you've studied of technology. We had an uproar about radio. We had an uproar about TV. Bob Moon mentions the payola uproar of the 50s. Now we've got an uproar about Facebook. Is it the same, Professor, as our earlier uproars, or is this time different? That's the right analogy, Tom, and that is Facebook at its its base case isn't really doing anything that any media company hasn't done before. Media companies try and gather information on their viewers and their advertisers and then use it to make the programming and the advertising and the targeting uh, more deft. The issue is nobody has ever been this good at it. And the other issue is that it doesn't appear the firm has taken really any steps to protect against bad actors. The analogy of a bank that leaves its doors and its vaults open and then screams, we've been robbed. And you have these old economy firms, media companies, policing what is the most technologically literate firm or one of them in history. So there's just a general lack of regard for the commonwealth that has got everyone angry here. Scott Galloway, you know, uh, in, in reading your book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, I am reminded of the big four. And that takes us to another century, the big four being the creators of the Central Pacific Railroad, Leland Stanford, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker. 
They were all individuals, and their empires and their legacy depended on individuals. Is that going to be the same legacy for these four companies? I'm just sitting here, Tim, and thinking I'd love to see an intellectual dance-off between Tim Fox and Tom King on economic history. That would be fun to watch. But yeah, these, these guys, look, it, it, we're at, in my view, a similar part of the uh, – a natural and a healthy part of the economic cycle where a, a, a few firms have aggregated so much power that it requires external intervention. And it doesn't necessarily mean they've done anything wrong. It doesn't yeah. mean they're bad people. It just means the markets need to be oxygenated. Pim, if we did that for Scott Galloway and did economic history, we could do that at a paint store up on Lexington Avenue and we could watch the paint dry <laughs> while we talk. Pim, pick it up. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You can find the Bix, the Bic paint store, the Blick paint store down in the near uh, Soho in the East Village. We can throw some paint and it will stick. And it is exciting to watch because, Scott, I, you know, to your point, there was a popular backlash against the business tactics of the big four. Are we going to see a popular backlash against these four companies? And should we be mindful of the reaction that once let loose cannot be controlled? You know, I don't think so, Pim. I think consumers talk a big game about supply chain ethics and then want that little black dress for $9.99. And how do you, a lot of people are upset, a lot of consumers are upset about the subterfuge of our democracy, and where do they express their outrage? They immediately well, go to Facebook or Instagram. So well, this revolution will not be led by right. consumers. Scott Kelly, you have been great. You're almost professor of arrogance at NYU. Is this going to pound <laughs> the arrogance out of Silicon Valley? Maybe not Apple. Maybe they're a separate beast, But the, and Bezos as well. But the common theme of so many of these unicorns and wannabe unicorns has been business and financial arrogance. Does this event of Mr. Zuckerberg today begin to pound that? arrogance out of them you know I, i'd like to think so i'm a bit cynical i don't think anything's going to happen anything's going to come out of dc here dc does not have the collective will or iq to take on big tech if the white house takes on big tech it's mayweather mcgregor part two and that is the redhead gets the crap kicked out of him the only progress here against big tech is happening mm -hmm. in europe and when's your paperback come out Oh, thanks for asking. It comes out in September, Tom. September, perfect time. He's just so, he's so, let me, could I be as cynical as Scott Galloway? John Tucker, Scott Galloway with a paperback out in September, perfect for classrooms nationwide. I was hoping for summer reading at the beach. At the beach, it could be that. Wait, well, Scott Galloway, the book is the four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. You will do, agree and disagree with every single page of it. It is so contentious about these four giant parts of our life. Pim, um, I, I don't know what we're going to hear today in the Hill. That's a summer I get from all these interviews. Probably a lot of I'm sorry. What do you think? No. I'm sorry, and no. I won't do it again. I don't know. There it is, uh, The Force, Scott Galloway. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.